0: To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for your word. The more we read it, the more we study it, the more we realize how little we know and how much more there is to learn and how much more there is to study. And there just seems to be a never-ending never, never uh, ending, uh, resource for us, always providing us with, with refreshment, encouragement, uh, new insights into our thinking. And each time we come to your word, there's more for us to learn. Father, I think this is one evidence that this is Your Word, not the Word of man, and that it is a strong reminder that we dare not neglect that which You have given to us, but that we should read it and read it and study it and learn it, and it will never grow tiresome. And to learn anything about Your Word is always something that will in turn excite us and stimulate us because whether it's in the Old Testament or New Testament, no matter where it is, we're learning about you and we're learning of your grace and your love for us. Now, Father, as we come to your word today, we pray you would help us to see the important truths that are, that are revealed to us, that God, the Holy Spirit, can use it to strengthen us, edify us, and to uh, motivate us to greater, greater heights in our spiritual growth. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to uh, Matthew uh, Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Now this is a tremendously interesting and exciting section of Scripture as we've been studying it. And we've put things together in a couple of different ways. And last week we looked at the passage in chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. And we focused on the fact that Jesus, for the third time, is giving the disciples a clear prediction that he's going to be going to Jerusalem, where he's going to be suffer, where he is going to be um, opposed by the chief priests and scribes and religious leaders, and that while he is there, he is going to suffer many things, He is going to be crucified, and he is going to be raised from the dead. And in this particular passage, he says that he's going to be mocked, going to be scourged, and going to be crucified. And then, as he has each time, he's referenced his resurrection, that this isn't the end. Now, as we looked at this last time, I focused on a couple of different things. I focused primarily on that this is the, the part of the significance of this is his reference to himself as the Son of Man. That this is a title that is a messianic title, and it is a title that is ultimately re, uh, related to his future rule. But that future rule that we often summarize as just the crown must come after the cross. Jesus has to suffer. And there are a couple of different ways in which we talk about the suffering of Jesus. There's there's suffering in his life, adversity that he faced due to the fact that he's in the devil's world and the opposition that he faced. And from the time that he was an infant and the opposition he faced from Herod who sent his uh, troops to kill and to slaughter all of the infants in Bethlehem under the age of two, up until the time that he is Nailed to the cross. And in fact, going beyond that a little bit to the time when God darkened the earth at noon, because it's not until that period from 12 noon until 3 p.m., when darkness is on the uh, face of the earth, and the suffering at that time is shielded from the view of man, that God imputed to the righteous Lamb of God your sins and my sins the sins of the world adam's original sin this is when that happens so that only during that period of from 12 noon to 3 p.m. Uh, do we have the redemptive sufferings of jesus because that's when he's paying the price that's what redemption means and i pointed out that what we see here in in matthew chapter 21 as we look at this last section is a, a, a <clears throat> is the fact that we have an inclusio that's the technical word it's uh, if you're got a military background in artillery it's bracketing, and you have a reference to the Son of man and and the suffering general suffering of Christ as long with his redemptive suffering in verses seventeen to nineteen, and then you have another reference to him as the Son of man in verse twenty eight and again it is a reference to his redemptive work on the cross that he will give his life a ransom for many. And what this section does is it brackets, it brackets what is being taught here and shows us that this section from verse 17 to verse 28 is meant to be understood as a, as a whole section that these, these themes work together. And in fact, what we'll see in just a minute is it's part of what Jesus has been teaching his disciples at least from the end of chapter 19, where he talks about the, men, uh, but many who are first will be last, and the last first in, ni- in 1930, that that it it's part of what he is teaching about that important principle, and that in turn is brought part of a larger section that began back at the beginning of chapter 18, when the disciples started to argue with each other and bicker with each other about who was going to be uh, first in the kingdom of God, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so all of this fits together. Now, what we see in terms of the progression of the life of Christ is that he's been ministering up in the north and around the Sea of Galilee. And starting at the beginning of chapter 19, we're told that he moved south uh, to the area across the Jordan. So he would be on this, where the arrow is here on the east side of the Jordan, and he is going to move across the Jordan. There's a couple of movements that are, that take place at this time. One is to go to Bethany to, to raise Lazarus from the dead. And I think he goes there and then he comes back, although uh, the uh, a majority of commentators have him doing this loop thing where he goes to raise Lazarus, then he heads back up to Galilee and comes back down again. And I haven't quite figured out what their rationale for that is. Maybe in a few weeks we'll get get to that and I'll figure it out. But he, that's where he is at this point is he's over here in the area called Perea across the Jordan uh, where he's having this, um, this teaching time with his disciples. He'll move, and we see in verse 29 that he moves from here to Jericho, which is located uh, right here so that is what's about to come and then immediately following that at the beginning of chapter 21 we have the description of the triumphal entry into jerusalem which is remembered by uh, the church as palm sunday and today is palm sunday and that's all you're going to hear about it today we'll get there in about a month we're a little off schedule in terms of uh, landing right on the right places on the right day. But that shows you where we are. Jesus is very close to his entry to Jerusalem, and which is one reason I don't think he's going to go in and heal Lazarus and then walk all the way back up to Galilee just to come back down again. But that's another issue. So what we saw last time is this reminder to the disciples that that he's going to be going to... Uh, going to be going to Jerusalem where he is going to suffer. The idea and the doctrine of suffering is foundational to understanding what he is teaching his disciples in this particular, in this particular section. But as I've already pointed out, this is the, the intro to this section in 17 to 19 and the end of the section brackets it with the same theme of his work of redemption. The idea of ransom for many is the same Greek word used for redemption, and it always focuses on the payment of a price. A price is paid for our sins, and that is the life of Christ. But the other thing that we see as we come to that, that, <clears throat> those last, uh, two verses, as in verse 27, Jesus says, "...whoever desires to be first uh, first among you, let him be your slave." Now, it's really interesting to trace the use of that word first in this section. We go back to 1930, that's the first time it's used, and it grows out of the context of what Jesus has, has said to the rich young ruler. And that fits within the context of the argument uh, between the disciples as who's going to be the greatest or who's going to be first when in, in the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is teaching them is it's not about status. It's not about your status now. It's not about your status when the kingdom comes. The priority is to serve the Lord and let the Lord take care of the issues as to what our position is going to be in the future kingdom. And that's important aspect of the doctrine of rewards. And before we wrap up this section, I'm going to have to give a nice little summary on the doctrines of rewards so that we can, we can come to under, understand that. But what Jesus is teaching here fits this whole context. So whatever is said, whatever is going on, in the intervening section from verse twenty to verse twenty six has to be understood within the framework of Jesus teaching what it means to be uh, to be first, that you have to be last to be first, and again, we have a, a second episode related to disciples uh, arguing about um, what position they 'll have in the kingdom in this case it 's James and John who've put their mother up to going to Jesus and asking uh, in their place for them to be given a place at his right and left hand when he comes in his in his kingdom so we have to set this up again it's very important to understand in scripture that you don't just go in and take these little stories and cut them out of scripture and isolate them and study them as if they they hang by themselves and we've seen that and you understand that pretty well probably better than most that that every one of these sections uh academically they're referred to as pericopes. Every one of these sections fits within a larger section, and that fits within a larger section, so that to truly understand any section, you have to really understand that general overall, overall context and put it together. But once you come to an understanding of that, there's, there's another principle of interpretation that comes into play, and that's a principle called the analogy of Scripture. Now, when I was growing up, and for many years I never heard that term, that is a long-time term for this, but most of us know it by the term comparing Scripture with Scripture, that the Word of God is an integrated whole, that, that doctrines are originally developed uh, in the Old Testament. And then there's progressive revelation, and more is added, and more is added as you move through the Scripture. And then when you get in the New Testament, you see things come together so that there's an integrated whole in terms of the Scripture, that Scripture must be understood in terms of how it complements each other, and that all of the Bible hangs together. And when people start chopping it up and trying to treat certain things separately, often they come up... With uh, what they think are contradictions in the scripture or this is when they begin to lose confidence in the scripture but rightly interpreted where you see things together it reinforces our faith now this doctrine related to to the last the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first is an important leadership principle and an important uh, attitude principle that jesus is trying to drill into his disciples in this whole section in preparation for their future role in ministry as disciplers now it's interesting we don't find the term disciple again after in terms of a verb after we get into Acts, we have the 12 referred to as disciples, but we don't really see the verb used, even though we see the concept imp- implemented throughout the rest of the New Testament. Matthew uh, has the greatest emphasis on the concept in the Gospel of Matthew, ending with a repetition of Jesus' command that we are to go and make disciples. In other words, the mission for the church is to make uh, Students of the Word of God. It is, it is focused around this idea of learning and studying and having our minds completely renovated by the Word of God. Romans 12, 2. We are not to uh, be conformed to this world, but let our thinking be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so ultimately the pursuit of spiritual maturity is a mental activity related to a mental attitude of humility and submission, uh, submission to the Lord. So as we look at this principle, what we're seeing in Matthew 20 verses 17 to 28 is that the ultimate model of this principle that the one who would be last shall be first and that is the lord jesus christ he is as isaiah 53 states he is uh, came and we esteemed him not he was despised and rejected among men he is looked down upon as a failure because he did not was not able to bring to completion his his mission of establishing the kingdom at least in the eyes of the world because they did not understand the principle that the cross had to come before the crown, that he had to pay the price for sin before he could establish a kingdom. Because if you establish a kingdom without sin being dealt with, then you have the same problem you've had with every preceding kingdom, is it's run by sinners, and it is uh, governed by the corrupt ideas of man, and it's ultimately doomed to failure. And so... As we look at this, and we look at the model of Christ as the uh, as what he says in verse verse 28 that he that he the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. I thought that to flesh this out a little bit, we need to look at Philippians chapter two. So turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to see how the Apostle Paul uh, puts this together to show and to uh, illuminate this this same principle in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Now, the epistle to the Philippians was primarily written as a letter of gratitude by Paul to the church in Philippi, which was located and Macedonia, pronounced Macedonia in in the Greek. It's located there, and they weren't an especially wealthy congregation. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, when Paul praises them, he says not that they gave out of their wealth, but that they gave out of their poverty. Now think about that a little bit. They didn't give from the excess that they have, they gave from the little that they had, which seemed to be barely enough to sustain them in terms of the necessities of life. They gave from their poverty. They gave because it glorified God. And so he is writing a thank you letter to them. And in this, he is dealing with some issues that they face, as most congregations face, and that is the issue of just plain old narcissism. And that is that we all, that, that's the orientation of the sin nature. Every one of us has a sin nature that basically s- interprets everything in life as being all about me. And it's always all about me, and it's never about you, but you're thin there thinking, no, 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 it's not about you, it's about me. And that's, th- that's our sin nature. And whenever we're focused on me, 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 we're just letting our sin nature run out of control. And you see it best illustrated in a, in a, in a young child, because uh, it's always all about children. And, and we live in cultures often that that dote on children, and we let them be the center of the world. In the ancient world, they didn't. A child had no status whatsoever in a culture, and that formed the background as we saw of the illustration in this section that disciples are to be like the little children in that culture, where they had no status, they had no position, they had no power, they were basic, basically just on the fringe. Uh, they were completely marginalized in that culture. And that is a picture of the, of the Christian disciple who is following uh, Jesus, that he's not emphasizing who he is and what he's going to be. And that was what Jesus was trying to get across to the disciples. Now, Paul builds on that idea in Philippians chapter 2, and the first four verses of Philippians chapter 2 are emphasizing the principle. In the first verse, he lays out four statements of truth in relation to our position in Jesus Christ and what we have in him. These are all expressed in if clauses, which are called grammatically conditional clauses, and the way they're set up in the Greek is they're what's called a first-class condition. In Greek, there are different ways that you can state a condition. You can state a condition as a debater would and say, if something is true and we're going to assume that it's true, then this would be the result. Uh, you can also state it in a first-class condition where you're stating something that is fact, and because it's fact, certain things are going to flow from it. That's how Paul is talking here. A second-class condition is the opposite. It's if, and we're assuming, the condition is false. And then a third-class condition is what we usually think of as a condition. If, if it rains this afternoon, then I won't be able to cut the grass. Some, some of us are saying we hope it won't, will rain this afternoon. I won't have to cut the grass, but we don't know whether it will rain or not. Maybe there's a forecast of rain, and so so we don't know. That's a third-class condition. But this is a first-class condition, and it comes close to having the sense of sense. Think that through a minute. It comes close to having the sense of sense. Since these things are true, do this. So he's emphasizing four things that are true in the body of Christ because we are in Christ, that there is consolation in Christ. We have comfort of love from Christ. We have the fellowship of the Spirit, which is a our our unity in Christ. And we have affection, and we receive mercy. All of this is in Christ. I'm not going to. I, my focus isn't on these first four verses, but it's the setup for what I want. To, I do want to focus on. So then his command to the Philippians and to each one of us is, he says, "Fulfill my joy, because these things are true. This is what you need to do. You need to be like-minded." The problem with people being like-minded goes back to that whole principle of self-absorption. We have our ideas and our way. And so when we start emphasizing our ideas and our way, then then a result of that is fragmentation. Uh, For for example, the Republican Party today. And what happened in Israel uh, in the uh, 60s, in the first century, the Jews were so fragmented that the culture was coming apart at the hinges. And in fact, when the Romans were breaching the walls of Jerusalem in in 70, uh, there were Jewish groups that were fighting in killing each other because they were so angry with one another. The culture had just so completely fragmented. Now, that's not what's supposed to be true of the body of Christ, but often it is. Uh, there are right things to back away from in terms of other believers, and there are some things that we fight over that are not essential. Uh, we are to be like-minded. We're to have the same love. We're to be of one accord and of one mind. I just want to focus on that fourth one. There is a certain mindset that is what Paul is saying here when he uses that term one mind. There is to be a common mental attitude. And what do you think that common mental attitude is grounded on? It's going to be humility. It's the same thing that Jesus is talking, trying to teach the disciples, this idea of humility. And so in verse 3, Paul then comes back, and he makes the statement from the negative in terms of a prohibition, he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, quit focusing on what you want and your agenda and your, your narcissistic little pleasures and focus upon what you're here for, which is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but now he's going to talk about the positive. In lowliness of mind, which is humility? It's not self-abasement. It's not the world's concept of just beating up on yourself or or, or making yourself uh, falsely humble in some sort of of uh, of actually sort of a backdoor arrogance. But it is recognizing it's not all about us, and it's not about our status now or in the future. It's not about our position that should not enter into it at all. We are only to focus upon. Uh, upon uh, upon our service to christ so he says in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself now in the context of matthew 20 james and john are clearly not esteeming the other 10 as better than themselves They, they they want their their mother to try to get them a special place of honor in the kingdom that's just the opposite of everything that jesus has been teaching uh, the same thing with the rich young ruler; he is looking to the fact of his wealth and his power, his position, to give him some, also to give him some sort of status in the future kingdom. And we see this as the same problem with the disciples at the beginning of chapter 19; they're arguing among themselves as to who's going to be great. And that is the opposite. Paul says, "In lowliness of mind," and the term they're translated "lowliness" is a uh, another a synonym for humility, esteem or honor others more than yourself. And then in verse 4, he says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests. So there it's, he's not saying don't ever get your way. He's not saying don't ever think that that the way you think you should do something is is necessarily wrong. But Look out not only for your own interests, and we all need to look out for our interests to a certain degree, but also for the interests of others. Elevate your focus on the needs of others to the same level as yours, loving your neighbor as yourself, uh, Leviticus chapter 18. So that's the command. Now he's going to give an example, and the same example that that Paul gives is the example that Jesus is giving in Matthew chapter 20. It is that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came not to serve, but to not to be served, but to serve. So in verse 5 he says, "Have this mind in you." Now the New American Standard takes translates this correctly as as an attitude. It's the Greek word for neo, which has to do with a way of thinking, not a way of feeling. The Christian life is not about how you feel. It's about how you think and what you do with what you understand to be true. It is about thinking again and again and again what we see in the Christian life is this emphasis in Scripture about thinking, renewing the mind, have this mind in you. It's not about how we feel. Now that doesn't mean that how we feel is irrelevant, but it's not the determining factor. We all have emotions, and emotions play a role sometimes. But sometimes the role they play is a negative role, and we have to do what's right despite how we feel about things. And how you feel about things is not a synonym for how you think. How many times people say, well, here's how I feel about that. Well, I don't care how you feel about it. I want to know what you think about it. Feeling is not a synonym for thinking, and yet in modern American idiom, it's often misused that way. So Paul says we're to have a certain attitude. It's a present active imperative, which means that this is to be the standard operating procedure or a basic command, a basic reality in every Christian's life, that the attitude we're to have in ourselves is the one that was in Christ Jesus. So, what is that? And then he develops that in verse 6. Now, this is one of the most significant, this whole section is one of the most significant verses for understanding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. In verse 6, Paul says, Who, referring back to Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, New American Standard translates it, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It is a difficult construction to to translate into English, and so we need to take a little bit of time to understand what these words meant and how we're to understand it. He starts off with the present participle that's translated, he existed, which sounds like it's a finite verb, but it's really the whole phrase, although he existed, and it's stating something that's going to be, appear to be a, a contrast to what we might expect. That's the idea in a concessive participle when we use the preposition, though or although. On the one hand, he is saying, on the one hand, he existed. Now, you ought to notice, that grammatically, this is a present tense, which means it's something that went on and on and on. He's treating it as an ongoing, uh, si- situation, ongoing, uh, action. He existed in the form of God. Now, in English, we often take the word form as a, as a physical form, as, like a physical mold. But that's not how it was used in, in Greek thought and among, uh, Greek philosophers. Often it was used to refer to the essence of something, that in Platonic thought, the form of a chair isn't its external shape, but is that which makes it a chair, as opposed to a table, uh, what we would call chairness. So if you see a dog, a dog has the form of a dog and not the form of a cat. It's not talking about its shape. It's talking about it has that which characterizes and makes it a dog as opposed to, uh, to a cat or a, some other four-legged creature. So when we look at this, we're, uh, what Paul is saying is, although he existed eternally in the essence of God, And being in the essence of God, being God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, or as the King James translates it, he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. That really obscures it in terms of modern language, so I like to use the New American Standard here. He's he's not grasping after his status as God, to put it in the language we've been using in Matthew 20. The, the, The disciples all want to be somebody. Jesus is somebody, but doesn't want to make a big deal about it. Jesus is not going to emphasize his divine prerogatives when he enters into human history. He is willing to let his divine prerogatives and privilege be overlooked so that he is not going to demand as he walks through the streets of Jerusalem that everybody bow down and worship him as God. He is giving up the the emphasis on uh, on, on how people should treat him for the sake of the goal of redemption. So this is your main verb here and we're told again it's emphasizing jesus mentality remember the command is to have this mind in you and the what he says about the mind is that jesus did not regard regard or he did not think or he did not consider equality with god that is who he is in his essence something to be grasped now think about what happened in the garden of eden uh God had created Adam and Eve. He placed them in this uh, beautiful, perfect environment, and he provided everything they, they would need in terms of their 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 food, in terms of their nourishment, in terms of uh, their relationship with him. Every day he came and spent time with them, and there was only one negative, and that was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God said, don't eat from it, and in the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, one day the serpent came along, who was indwelt by Satan and is tempting Eve, and said, "Did God really say that?" And immediately, by the way he asks the question, he's introducing doubt into into her mind. And then Eve says that 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 God told us not to eat it or or touch it. And sometimes we talk about well, she's adding to it, but she may just be saying that, that it that the prohibition was so strong in her mind that she just added something else to make sure she wouldn't even break the first rule. She's not even going to touch it. She's not going to come close to it. And then Satan said, well, God just really holding things away from you. He just doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be like God. So the temptation in the garden isn't the fruit itself, but this idea that by eating it, They can take on deity. They can become like God. And so the contrast here in Paul is that Jesus is saying, uh, Jesus' thinking is that he is God, and he doesn't consider it something to be grasped after, not like Adam, who wasn't God and wanted to get it. And so this is the kind of thinking, not asserting his privilege, his position, or his power. Now, that's what the disciples want to do, is they want to assert their position, privilege, and power. So as we sort of paraphrase this, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ, although he eternally existed with identical essence to God, did not think it was something to be held on to. Now, one thing you might want to think through is, is this thinking, this mental attitude, part of his deity or part of his humanity? Remember, it's saying although he eternally existed, he did not past tense. So it's part of his deity. He is not as the God the Son before the hypostatic union. He wasn't going to hold on to to his to his deity. He wasn't going to have to grasp it. Now that's the word harpogmas which is related to the word harpazo, translated the rapture, the great snatch, the same idea. He didn't think it was something to be grasped or snatched or held on to. Uh, Jesus is going to grasp us in the rapture. So that's the, the relationship there. So as a paraphrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, although he eternally existed with identical essence to God, did not think equality with god a claim to be selfishly grasped after but instead this is what he did he emptied himself so there's a contrast there and the word emptied himself is one that was has been debated a lot in by theologians it's the word the verb kenao and this is referred to as the kenosis problem what does it mean that jesus emptied himself Well, he emptied himself is described more fully by the uh, participles that come after it. He doesn't empty himself by giving up deity. He empties himself by taking on humanity. He adds something to himself. He takes on the form of a bondservant. He receives the form of a bondservant. And we read here, he emptied himself by receiving the form of a servant or the essence of a servant or slave. And the word doulos there is the word that is uh, usually translated slave or bond slave, not an honorary position. Now, remember what Jesus teaches at the end of this section in Matthew 20. In verse 27, he said, whoever desires to be first among you, Let him be your doulos, let him be your slave. That's the same word that's used here. Jesus is talking out of his own experience in Matthew chapter twenty. He took on the form of a slave. He became last so that he would be, with the result that he would be first. So. In these verses we read, although he existed in the essence of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by receiving the essence of a bond servant, a slave, and... "...being made in the likeness of man." That introduces the uh, the humanity, the human body. He becomes something he was not. It's the use of the word genemi there. Something new came into existence, and he is in the likeness or the essence of humanity. So he empties himself two ways, by taking on the form or the na- essence or the nature of a servant and by coming into existence in the essence of man having a physical body. So he's found, verse 8, in appearance as a man, and then the key idea here is he humbled himself. How? Not through just some some technique of self-abasement or some psychological uh, manipulation. He is obedient to the point of death. That's what humility is. Humility isn't walking around uh, with a certain look on your face or a certain body language. Uh, It's not making a doormat out of yourselves. A humble person is somebody who is obedient to the plan and the purpose and the will of God. It is somebody who understands who the authorities are over him, And is submissive to them. In the Old Testament, Moses is said to have been the most humble man in the Old Testament. But Moses ruled an unruly people, a stubborn, stiff-necked people, as God called them, about two and a half million Jews in the wilderness, which was a tough job. He asserted his authority over them numerous times but he was submissive to the authority of God, so he is called the most humble man in the Old Testament by God. So this is how Jesus humbles himself. He takes on the form, or he humbles himself by being obedient. He puts himself and maintained himself in right relationship to the authority of God. Of God the Father, so he becomes obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. So that involves the suffering. This relates back, as I pointed out, going back to Matthew chapter seven, uh, Matthew chapter sixteen, when Jesus first announced that he was going to the cross, and how did he follow that up? He said, I want you to take up your cross daily and follow me. That's the essence of a disciple. That's not how you get saved, but that's, you're not going to grow without submission to authority. That's the imagery of taking up your cross, because in the Roman Empire, when a, when a criminal revolted, rebelled against the authority of Rome, and Rome finally brought them to heal, then they were forced to carry their cross to the execution point to, as a statement that they were now in submission to the authority of Rome. And so as disciples, the point of taking up your cross daily is submitting to the authority of God's will. And so he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That involves suffering. The point that we're seeing emphasized at the end of this section is that if we want to be true disciples of Jesus, then there will be suffering. There will be adversity. There will be conflict. Uh, It will be different for different people. Sometimes there's adversity because we're just living in the devil's world and things are going to go wrong. And if the devil knows that, if Satan knows that we are Uh, trying to submit to the Lord and follow him, that things are going to come up day in and day out that prevent us from doing what we want to do. And so we have a tendency to get impatient, to get aggravated, to get upset, and all kinds of other things. Next thing you know, we're operating on the sin nature. But we are to be obedient. We're to submit to the Lord, and we don't learn how to do that outside of being in at uh, an adversity type of situation. The result of Jesus submitting to the authority of God isn't that he is just abased, it isn't that he is just put down and becomes a nobody, but because he is willing to do the will of God and submit to him, recognizing that it's not about his position or power, but it is about God's will, then God it elevates him. The same can be true of disciples. That's why Jesus says when um, Z- Salome comes to Jesus, he says, uh, to, to give his James and John a position, he says it's not his responsibility. It's not up to him. It's up to the Father. The Father is the one who exalts. And so we look at Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 9 and following, and we read, Therefore God has also has a highly exalted him. The exaltation came not through himself, it wasn't self-exaltation, it was through God the Father who exalted him because of his humility and obedience to the Father. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. He was treated as a reproach. He was treated as a common criminal. He was treated as the lowest of the low, the last of the last, and yet he is going to be the first of the first. Why? Because he submitted himself to the will of God. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name goes on to say that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and on those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, not to the glory of himself. So the principle that we see developed all through the scripture is that The path to exaltation and glory is through complete submission to the authority of God, but we aren't to be concerned about what that glory is going to look like, what it's going to be about. Now, this idea of suffering and adversity is brought out a lot in 1 Peter. We've been studying this as a major theme in 1 Peter, but I just want to bring out a couple of points. In 1 Peter 2.21, Peter says for this you were called because Christ also suffered for us. As I pointed out last time, this usually isn't emphasized in too many gospel presentations. I remember Dallas Seminary used to have a little tract called How to Have a Happy and Wonderful Life. And there were a lot of people who criticized that because because when you look at passages like 1 Peter 2:22 or 2:21 and some other passages where in First Timothy chapter chapter 4, Paul says, those who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. How's that for a great promise? That makes you just feel warm and fuzzy all over. Here he's saying that, that to, you were called to this purpose, that you will suffer. That is, in terms of the gospel, not just suffering in its own sake, but that is, you're living in the devil's world to to be a representative of God's uh, grace and God's authority and, and the message of salvation, then you are going to face opposition. So Jesus is the pattern. He's the model because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, he did nothing wrong. And yet he was treated unjustly, unfairly. He was treated, the whole trial was illegal. And oftentimes we say, well, they can't do that to me. That's not fair. Guess what? That's what, what's expected. Just just remember that. He committed no sin, no, no, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He did not deserve it one iota. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. That's what's before us. We are to live for righteousness. And then in chapter 4, Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. uses the same language that that Paul used in Philippians 2. Arm yourselves, it's a protection device, with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And then just as a closing reminder of another passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 12, this is after Paul has been taken to heaven and he's been given all this uh, 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 revelation, he's back uh, restored on earth, God also gave him, or allowed in his permissive will, a, an angel of Satan that would be a demon to provide a level of persecution or opposition to Paul it's called the thorn in the flesh and so Paul had to deal with this He there was a messenger of Satan to buffet him lest he should be exalted above measure now this wasn't direct and personal it was indirect through all of the opposition and persecution and suffering that Paul went through there was a demon behind it but un- unlike the charismatics who say you got to get rid of that demon, Paul said, no, that was a permissive will of God, of God. And he pleaded with God three times that it might depart from him. And God said, no, no. Just remember, I said, no. <laughs> I'm not taking it away. Why? Because you have to learn something. That my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's the focal point. We don't learn that though unless we are willing to submit to the authority of God. So, next time we'll probably t- talk about Easter and resurrection, but next time we'll come back, the next time we're in um, Matthew, we'll come back and see how this works in terms of what Jesus is teaching the disciples about the first will be last but the last will be first. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to reflect upon this important principle in your word, because this is at the very core, the very foundation of our spiritual life, to learn true humility, which is part of grace orientation, to be submissive to your authority, to be submissive to your will, which means we, to submit to your will, we have to know your will. The only way we can know your will is to know your word. And the only way we can know Your Word is to take the time to read it, to study it, to uh, come to church, to Bible class, to study Your Word that it may shape and reshape our thinking so that, as Jesus demonstrated, we humble ourselves by becoming obedient to Your Word. Father, we recognize this isn't the way to get saved, but it's the way that a saved person should live. For those who are listening who have never trusted in Christ as Savior, are not sure of their salvation, this is an opportunity for you to uh, trust in Christ as Savior, to have eternal salvation, to be sure of your eternal destiny. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. The offer of salvation is a free gift. All we have to do is trust in Him, and at that instant we are given Christ's righteousness and declared justified. We are Regenerated as well, and we become a new creature in Christ. And we have eternal life, a life that can never be taken from us. And so, if you've never trusted in Christ as Savior, this is the offer of salvation to believe on Him, to accept Him, to receive Him, and what He has done on the cross is yours. And then you will have everlasting life. Now, Father, we pray that you will challenge us with what we've learned from your word today.